Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and today I'm excited to have Sergey Gribov, who's a partner at Flint Capital, which is an early stage venture fund that invests across Europe, Israel, and US with 19 exits and three unicorns in its portfolio. Welcome to the show, Sergey. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Awesome. So, so you know, um, uh, you have an interesting journey, and you do invest across different different uh, markets. But as interesting, you know, how do, how did you get your start in 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 this crazy world of VCs? Uh so my my original background is technical, and I guess I was lucky. I was employee number one in one of the successful startups from Israel. Uh, right out of university. Actually, I was still studying in university, so I had uh, to do a lot of different things. The good thing about being employee number one, like uh, really crazy growing companies, you can you can do a bunch of different stuff. So that's how I moved to yes, basically to open our office in yes, and uh, uh, I was involved in startups all my life i basically i think during my whole career i worked for a big company about two months was yeah. bored to death uh, so at some point uh i was being part of a bunch of different startups as kind of technical management slash founding team at some point decided kind of to switch to the dark side went to mit did business degree started to do some angel investments and uh, joined Flint about eight years ago as a partner. Interesting. And, uh, you know, you say something very interesting, which is you, you've always been into, into startups. Uh, and, and, and so, so have I, you know, I've been into tech startups, but I do get a lot of um, a pushback that, you know, why I haven't worked in a, in a big company. Uh, who do you think you know should work in tech startups because it can become really hard, especially in two thousand twenty-three. You don't want to be in a tech startup, but who do you think is an ideal startup guy? And you know, how should somebody make a decision that should they should work in a bigger company or they should work in a startup? So I actually got this question from time to time from friends: Should I go and join some startup? And uh, my take on it: It depends on personal preferences. So people who comfortable with like a lot of ambiguity, a lot of unknown, uh, they will feel great in startups. Uh, it's like basically startups are about to take risks. And frankly, uh, I always envy all the founders we invest in because uh, these people are taking huge risks. Usually the chances of startup to succeed are actually pretty slim. No. Uh, and even if you join as as employee at startup, you still need to be able to kind of cope with this risk because sometimes you you have a company who have like several months of runway and you basically don't know if a company will exist in three or four months. Uh, but from another side, it's bigger risk and bigger rewards. So in startups, you can uh, you can build your career way way faster than in big company. If a startup is successful, you grow the startup. Uh, so I think it, it depends on the person. If a person is really comfortable with uh, a lot of unknown and a lot of risks, I I would say it's certainly worth trying startups. 
I would guess for somebody who is young uh, and willing to take more risks, it's probably a good idea to go to startup. From our side, if some people are really uncomfortable, then we don't know what's going to be in the com with the company in like six months or a year. Yeah, maybe it's better fit for them to work for bigger companies. So it's not like startups are good or bad. It's more like personal fit. I see. Very interesting. And um, and especially, you know, uh, you you work in tech startups and then you you moved on to film capital. Um, and very interestingly, you uh, you also happen to be the board member at Unicorn, uh, a startup called Sokor. Um, how did how did that uh, come into picture? And you know how how did you get to invest into Sokor, uh, which went on to become yeah. you know four billion dollar company? Uh, yeah. So Sokur is uh, is a fintech, basically virtual identity company. They uh, their mission is to verify hundred percent of uh, real identities on the internet. Right. Uh, I uh, I led there around. I met with the company through a couple early investors in the company. Uh, you know, a, a lot of these things happened uh, kind of half accidentally. You talk to different people. You you ask them what interesting companies in your portfolio I should meet, and that's how I got to Secure. Uh, I really like what uh, what we were building because it it was unique. There was uh, really really cool technology behind it. It's basically a data science company. Even now, when the company is really big, about a quarter of people uh, in the company are data scientists. Uh, so I led the around uh, help company to grow through different round, and I think I'm. Uh, probably the oldest serving board member there yeah. right now because uh, most of our board members uh, joined company later on. But it's it's uh, it's been and it's still a really fun ride. It's it's really great to see the company kind of getting from like really early stage uh, company with just uh, 20, 30 people uh, to pretty big and serious company. Got interesting. And uh, especially, you know, since since you've been a you know, board member of, uh, I would say, around uh, eight startups, um, you know, um, what, what does what does good uh, board membership require? You know, especially when it comes to early stage startup boards, they can only compensate you with equity. But uh, but what, what does it take to become a good board member? So, yeah. So one, we don't, uh, when you represent fund, you're usually not compensated personally. Basically, we kind of <clears throat> we invest in a company for lead round. We usually join board, right. and you kind of represent your fund and a little bit broader. If you like, for example, in case of Secure, I represent A and C uh, preferred. So everybody who invested together with us, uh, I kind of represent them. Uh, in different stages of a company, it's kind of a little bit different. Uh, I think, and that's what goes to general question of how like VC can bring some added value to startup because 
like when uh, when we're competing for good deals, uh, usually startups have a bunch of term sheets on the table, and we we have to choose uh, which investor we would go to. So everybody is talking about like value add, uh, because like if you think about money, money is kind of ultimate commodity. It's all green, so it doesn't really matter if it's dollar from me or dollar from our receipt. Uh, so uh, what I found is what uh, everybody is talking about different value adds. Uh, I'm kind of lucky in, in Israel ecosystem because everybody knows everybody. So basically when people ask me about my value add, I just say, okay, uh, what I can promise you, I, uh, I'll try to help. Uh, in some of my companies, I was able to help to bring really good sales leaders. Does it mean I can do it in any of my companies? No. Uh, in some of my companies, I was able to connect them to good follow-on investors, but does it mean what they will invest? No, sometimes we would, sometimes we wouldn't. Uh, what I can really promise is uh, I'm going to try to help in any shape or form I can. Uh, so especially with early stage founders and especially with like first time founders, that's actually a very important thing to be there for them and trying to help in many cases, which means basically just being like sounding board or uh, in some cases even being kind of a shrink to founders because being CEO is a very lonely job and you can't really talk to your uh like VPs about like really uh, all the problems you're going to. So sometimes you would talk to your board members or your investors if you have a really trusting relationship with them. So it's in the early stage, you're trying to help company to set up boards. And basically I work a lot with like first time founders. So in some cases, we don't even know how the board should look like, how the board presentation should look like, etc., etc. So I try to work with them, uh, kind of trying to slowly shape them in a, uh, in a way what then uh, there will be time when they need to raise the next round and we're going to go to follow on VCs. Uh, when we see look at the board meeting minutes, uh, the board decks, we could see what the company is actually matured in terms of like operations, in terms of management, etc. Later on, you're trying to help them bring uh, the next investors on and trying to help them maybe to navigate how do you communicate with investors, uh, things like that. So basically, you, you're trying to be there for them. Uh, and what I love about it, uh, like good entrepreneurs, you start working with a first-time entrepreneur and we don't know how to do a lot of this stuff, but... Uh, fast forward a couple of years and you can see what we actually uh, very, very uh, they're growing with the company so they can actually do uh, pretty much everything uh, by themselves without your help. Uh, so you kind of, you, you try to help them to get uh, to get there and they're growing with the company and you being there basically for the right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And is there any difference from an early stage 
you know board membership and to later stage uh, and you know what could be the differences there uh, yeah, we, there are a lot of differences. In early stage, uh, usually boards are way less formal, uh, usually don't have that many people on the board, and you kind of talk, uh, you have way less issues, so you can kind of, uh, you, you have shorter boards. Uh, later stage, usually you have like, uh, you have to go through procedures. Usually at a board, you have, you bring your management to the company, which sometimes can be like a bunch of different people. You bring all your VPs, etc. Uh, so you have way more structure to the board. You need to make sure you can cover everything. You have way more things to discuss. Uh, so it's usually more mature, more structured. Uh, different questions like uh, at early stage you you can discuss a single hire uh, basically at later stages you already not at this stage when you're talking about uh, a single hire unless it's like C-level executive uh, because people are hiring like tens of tens of people a month or a week even yeah, yeah. interesting and uh I think the most interesting thing, what I've realized is like Israel is such a small country, but there's a high density of startups and, and I think the highest number of unicorns per per mile, I don't know. But why do you think Israel has so many, uh, you know, a number of startups and they're doing so well, considering that, you know, it is, uh, you know, it's not in the epicenter of Europe or in, or in Asia or in, uh, or in the US. Uh, so, uh, there are lots of information about it, and it's like it's probably long conversation because you have you have complete puzzle why why it's happening. There is a good book called Startup Nation, which nice. is, discusses it, but it's combination of many different things. Uh, it's combination of uh, culture uh, in Israel. It's kind of a culture, basically. Uh, Never ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. Basically, mm. people are just doing things and we'll see how uh, things fall. And also, because of all the army, everybody goes to the army there. So if you take like 24 years old Israeli versus 24 years old American, the average Israeli at that age would be way more mature because uh, the person would go through the army, had some leadership training. In many cases, they would be an officer in the army and they had like very serious responsibilities. Plus, you also have all these cyber units, which are actually very good in teaching people computer-related skills. So uh, army is a big portion of it. Also, I think one of the interesting things in Israel the country is small, uh, so the, nobody really thinks there is any market for their startup in Israel. Mm. So they had to go global from day zero. And basically, most of Israeli startups, uh, even at the initial stage, are already going after US market, which I think uh, works really well there. Uh, but on top of it, it's it's also it took uh, twenty plus years to uh, for the ecosystem to develop to the stage it, it is now. 
when I first started in the first company I worked for, it was like uh, mid nineties. <clears throat> Sorry, Israeli ecosystem was just starting, so there were not that many people in the Israeli ecosystem who knew how to sell in the US. Uh, usually, Israeli startup would develop technology and sell it early on to US companies. Uh, but nowadays, uh, you have a bunch of unicorns, uh, Israeli startups are buying cover Israeli startups. So the whole ecosystem is a completely different level. But it, it took time and it took a lot of uh, learning and experience from like everybody around the ecosystem. Very interesting. And um and another interesting, you know, thing about about your experience is that you you were part of a team which which uh bought a company called Vivox uh, and then you you know sold it for for 20x return you know what what was why why did you you know go on to buy in this company and what are your lessons building the company so uh vivox is an interesting case and i think uh, at some point i should probably write a business case on it because it's actually a case how vcs can screw up the company but what's what happens all the time what was unusual what at the end uh the company we did a management buyout and kind of uh, it was very successful management buyout basically. Well, I I was actually part of founding team at Vivox. Uh, it was uh, I think two thousand two no two thousand three two thousand four I think when we started Vivox. Uh, company got twenty I don't remember exactly the number but more than twenty million from really good funds like Benchmark Kenyan. Uh, right. The problem was what the company was doing voice communication for like online games uh, and stuff like that, where you could build a nice company, but you can't really build a billion dollar company in that space, at least at that time. And the problem when you raise too much money from VCs, they kind of push you to go big or go home. Right. Uh, so I, I I left the company when I went to MIT and basically I was doing some other stuff afterwards. Fast forward like about eight, nine years. Uh, and you see the company which was doing like about three million in revenue, cash flow zero kind of thing. Right. Uh, funds were at the end of their life, so they weren't interested in doing anything with this company. And it's a good, uh, we're talking about great funds, so for them, like a couple millions wouldn't make any difference. Uh, so I participated basically, we did management buyout. Uh, we bought a company back from VCs for three million, allocated, I don't remember, 30 or 40 percent uh, ESOP to kind of properly motivate all the team. And the company grew organically since when grew to about 10 million in revenue and was sold to Unity for 100 million, oh. which was a great uh, investment for everybody. It was great for the team, which made a lot of money. It was good outcome. Hey, no, I, I think that's not super interesting. And, uh, and, and you know, since, since you work with a lot of um, founders, what do you think are, you know, some, some of the traits which... You know, some of the special leaders are, especially with the unicorn founders. Uh, so uh, there are 
a lot of different things you you look at uh, especially the unicorn founders we very successful founders we uh, visually have really great vision and they stick to that vision uh i think like one of the things i learned working with a lot of different founders so you have you have kind of scale of things you have on one side you have founders who would listen to everything you say and would do whatever you say on another side of the scale you have people uh, founders who wouldn't listen to anything you say so they wouldn't listen so the great founders are somewhere in the middle uh, they would listen to all the input from everybody around the table but they would make their own decision and sometimes they would agree with you sometimes they wouldn't and it's their choice uh, so i think the great founders we have vision we have this ability to listen to everybody around them but make their own decisions sometimes make their uh, make hard decisions and also lead by examples correct and um and how important do you think is you know the speed of execution during these times especially in 2023 where there have been a lot of layoffs and you know uh, a bit of a capital crunch but how important is you know execution and, and the speed of execution for founders and execution is always the most crucial part because like ideas are kind of people say the dime a dozen. Right. Execution is everything. Uh, I wouldn't put it as speed of execution. Uh, I would put it as execution because sometimes you need speed. Sometimes you need to be smart about speed. Like I think one of the big problems which we saw in like 21 uh 20 and begin of 22 is people would uh, raise way too much money and they would burn it way too quickly so they would say okay we need to be fast so let's burn as much money as we can and basically get uh, get results and a lot of these companies are gonna get either already getting screwed or gonna get screwed because uh, a lot of people nowadays are looking if in 21 everybody was looking at like revenue numbers today people are looking at capital efficiency yeah so being capital efficient doesn't always mean you need to move fast sometimes you do then you have then you understand what okay you have product market fit and you have a scalable sales model at this case you can already move fast basically you can put more money into marketing and sales and you're going to deliver results but that until you get to this product market fit you still need to move i mean you need to move fast but you need to iterate fast you need you can't really burn too much money you can't really there's no point of trying to spend too much money in marketing until you figured out your product market fit so in that sense you have to move fast in terms of like interactions and getting to product market fit uh, but that would be a different kind of uh, moving fast in essence so I, I i would say you need to you need to have great execution uh and sometimes it means moving fast sometimes it means interacting fast but not kind of uh growing with much yet because you need first to build this product market fit in order to start growing got it, interesting and and how important do you think is um 
you know mission statement and vision do you think it it's really relevant especially in the early stage or do you think that that should come much later after the product market fit has happened so i think uh, it's important to have vision uh, because yeah. basically that's kind of uh, that's where you're trying to go and it's okay to pivot along the way and it's okay to maybe even change your vision but you need you need to have something like far, far on horizon where you're kind of trying to get to. Otherwise, you're just uh, doing too many interactions and kind of going in circles. Got it. And, um, and what, do you, what do you think is, um, uh, you know, biggest lessons for you when it comes to delivering feedback, not only to the founders and, you know, when founders are giving that feedback to the employees? Um, I think, uh, I think in giving feedback, it's, it's very important tool. Uh, I think you need the good feedback comes with the trust, right. uh, because, uh, it's not very useful to give very nice feedback just because you want to be nice. Right. Uh, you need to give constructive feedback and it doesn't work well unless you all already have enough of the trust. And it, it takes time, basically. It takes time. People need to understand what the feedback you're giving is, uh, is useful, uh, it's actionable, etc., etc. It's not like you haven't done any feedback during two years and suddenly you start giving feedback and everybody takes it seriously. It's something you build over time. And when you have this trust, it's very useful to have uh, very constructive and honest feedback. Uh, I think it's hard for many people, but when it's actually working, it's huge, huge plus. Got it. And, um, and, and where do you see is the, is the biggest mistakes you know founders make when they are delivering feedback? Uh, to you know the product guys or to uh, to the revenue team. Uh, so in in many cases, uh, it's hard to give honest feedback. Right. And in that respect, I actually love working with Israelis because Israelis are very direct. Right. Uh, I've heard from many American investors, for example, when we talk to Israeli founders, we kind of we a little bit kind of taken aback a little bit by directness because Israeli founder uh, is not afraid to, to tell you what you're full of bullshit if they think so, right. uh, which I love. Um, and I think uh, when, uh, when, for example, founder give feedback to their like product team or their marketing team, it's important to be honest uh, and it's important to be constructive. It's important not just to say, uh, okay, I think whatever the marketing campaign we did it didn't work, and bas basically all your ideas sucks. Yeah. That's not useful feedback. Uh, the useful feedback would be okay. Let's let's take a look at the numbers. It doesn't look from the numbers we uh, we hit what we wanted to hit. So there is a problem here. So let's think together what we can change. What's your ideas? What can be changed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. It's pretty much the same type of feedback, but 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 it's completely different in terms of how it's delivered. It, it has to be something constructive. It has to be something what people can take and do something with. 
Right. And, uh, and you know, you had earlier alluded about, uh, you know, I think secure being one of your biggest hits, but, but what's been your biggest misses and, you know, what did you learn from, from some, some of the biggest misses, which you were not able to invest in? Uh, we, uh, at Flint, basically we, uh, what we do from time to time with three partners, we very small investment team, three partners to principals. And we actually, the whole team is completely remote. Right. We distributed between Boston, Europe, and Tel Aviv. Right. Uh, so we try to, at least between three of us, we try to meet at least every quarter. And one of the exercises we're going through, uh, we're trying to figure out what's worked, what didn't. So sometimes we would look at, our prior investments and would think through, okay, if we today would know exactly the same things we knew back then when we decided to make an investor, would we invest today? Not knowing what happens afterwards, but given all the information we had back then. And one of the lessons learned, uh, which we, we see pretty much every time in, I would say probably 80 to 90% of the time, uh, the uh, the problem was team, the yeah. founders, the team of the project. So, and it's it's different. Sometimes it's uh, team just didn't have enough expertise in uh, to execute on their vision. Sometimes actually it's about uh, team being able to listen for the feedback. So, uh, as I said, the best founders on this scale from being able to listen and uh, and doing something, uh, doing everything we uh, we told to to like our side, not listening to anything. We're great founders are somewhere in the middle. We should be able to listen to, for feedback and make their own decisions. So sometimes uh, we invested in founders who were on one side of the scale or another, and in both cases, it didn't work well, for example. Mm. So uh, I, I think 80 to 90% of mistakes we did, kind of mistakes uh, uh, we did as an, uh, when we invested were related to actual team of founders, people, etc. Interesting, very interesting. And um, uh, and where do you think, you know, what the biggest mistakes, uh, you know, VCs made from 2022? Do you think uh, VCs made a lot of investments and now, you know, uh, there's a bit of a hype and now they're trying to save some of, some of the startups? Uh, yeah, so what happens in 2022, it was way too much money on the market. In essence, uh, it's uh, economics 101. You have uh, supply, demand. Uh, supply are startups. Demand is money, uh, like you can take dry powder at VC. And what happens in 21 and begin of 22, you had way more money, way more money than previously. I don't remember the exact numbers, but uh, if you compare to amount of dry powder in 21, it was probably almost twice whatever was available in like 18 or 19. So the number of startups were pretty much the same. It's not like people were starting twice more companies. So you had way more money 
chasing after the same number of startups. And as in usual supply-demand curve, the prices skyrocketed. Uh, so valuations were really high and a lot of people were kind of, okay, I have to invest even if I don't like valuations, even I'm investing at this valuation, I don't invest at all. Uh, so people continued to invest. And frankly, a lot of valuations were completely uh, outrageous. So the problem a lot of these companies will have, especially if we're talking about companies who raised like seed rounds uh, in 2020, uh, 21, 22, uh, their valuation was really high. Mm -hmm. uh, they are coming now and they need to uh, raise their next round. Valuation came, a lot of valuations came down. I, I haven't seen like good uh, statistics on that, but from what I see, from what I hear right now, valuations are getting back to like normal level of like somewhere between 2017 and 2019 levels. Yeah. And what happens, what all these companies which raised at valuations which were completely unreasonable, they come into the next round and a lot of these companies, uh, even if it's it's good company and we made some progress. We're still not going to justify uh, the up round uh, from the early round relation. So a lot of these companies are going to get screwed because they will have to do in the best case scenario flat rounds. And in most of the scenarios, we, we will have to do down rounds. Uh, it's And it's always hard. Uh, right. As investor, it's much easier to decide to do up round if you see it's reasonable when to go in and say, okay, uh, the company is good, but valuation is just out of whack, so let's do down round. You, you know, you're going to screw up common, which are founders and employee companies. You're going to probably have to screw up early stage investors, and nobody wants to do it. So... To raise a down round, it's much, much harder to raise a regular round. Mm. So a lot of these companies are kind of stuck. The smarter one kind of trying to extend their runway and kind of grow into valuation. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. But I think in the next six to nine months, we'll see a lot of blood on the streets. Mm. We'll see a lot of these companies... Uh, uh, either got acquired as like hires or closing. Some of them will go for like really down rounds. I already see down rounds. I just a week ago I saw the company which raised money at hundred million post money valuation last round, and now they trying to raise at fifteen to twenty, oh. uh, which is gonna completely wipe out uh, all the common and early investors, yeah. and we still have. We haven't found the lead. The company is, frankly, it's a reasonable product. Uh, we have some reasonable traction for kind of late seed, early A. But we just got screwed because we, uh, we took way too much money. The other problem with taking way too much money, it's very hard if you raise 15 million seed round, it's very hard not to spend uh, yeah. all this money. 
so these companies are get used to being very, very capital inefficient. They we have huge burns, and when we need to extend the runway, we starting to cut the burn rate, but we uh, not getting even close to the reasonable burn rate for their stage. So in many cases, when you look at these companies, nowadays people look a lot at uh, capital efficiency metrics. Hmm. You look at a company which is basically late seat, initial below 1 million IRR, and the company is burning like 600k a month, which doesn't make any sense. Hmm. Yeah, no, and it's too... very hard. Like we have to scale back to like uh, we basically have to fire like 80% of the current employees to get to like really correct size uh, company for their stage, which is very 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 hard to do. And yeah. very bad for morale. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely right. I think there's going to be a lot of blood mark, uh, but a lo lot of lessons for, you know, uh, founders are going to start right now. I think uh, the lessons have learned been learned by the VCs as well as from, from the founders. But what advice would you give to emerging managers, you know, trying to raise their, you know, first and second funds? Obviously, they're struggling, but any any advice for them? Um, so I... I... I wouldn't give advice on how to raise your funds. We're still uh, in kind of learning mode ourselves. We, we're on a third fund now, right. uh, but we're still learning how to properly raise the venture fund. Uh, but it's actually a good, it's good, it's a good timing because uh, the market is correcting. So whoever is going to be investing in the next year. Uh, there's a good chance we're gonna get into like really good companies, uh, and it's the best time to invest when there is blood on the streets. So uh, I think uh, they need to be, especially like first-time managers, we need to be cautious not to kind of uh, jump too quickly on a deal. Right. Uh, we need to do their homework, but I think there will be a lot of really good deals uh, on the market in the next year. So it's a good timing if you're on the first or second fund. Uh, if you have money to invest, it, it's really good. Got good it. Interesting. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, you, you've been in the, in the venture industry for close to a decade now, um, and, and there have been a lot of uh, innovative products like crowdfunding campaigns and a lot of lot of interesting things have come, especially with AI. You know, uh, it hasn't really disrupted the venture industry, but um, but it has really helped and you know increased the productivity by say thirty percent. But who do you think will be the winners and losers in the next you know ten years of the venture capital, especially in the in the venture industry? So one thing, uh, venture industry is the industry of really really long feedback loop. Uh, by uh, you, especially if you invest in early stage, you understand how your fund is doing probably closer to the year five of your fund. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, because before that, it's still hard to say. Uh, when we were on like five or uh, year five on our first fund, we still, we, we kind of, uh, Usually when we meet, we have these like five top companies in the portfolio, kind of spending a little bit more time on these companies. So the funny thing, 
when one uh, when we look at top five companies when we were on year like four out of top five companies i think three companies are no longer top performers in our fund uh, so our top five companies in the portfolio four years ago were mostly different from whatever it's now it it takes especially if you do early stage it takes you probably five to seven years to understand who are the winners and who are the losers like you have a lot of these companies which are kind of good companies you invest in it and in five six years you get exit and you have like maybe three four x on your money but it's not gonna uh, move the needle for the whole fund. The real winners, uh, which are kind of fund returning companies, it takes like seven years to get there. You can't really build uni uh, unicorn in like two, three years. Yeah. Uh, unless it's like a bubble, but most of these unicorns, which uh, which become unicorns way too quickly, they, at the end, they be unbecome unicorns uh, even quicker. So, uh, so whoever are winners in 10 years, it means these funds are probably going to invest in their winning company like in the next three years, I would say. And it's it's very hard to say. It's uh, a lot of this, uh, it's luck, uh, meeting the right founder at the right time. And uh, now I think what I learned, what a lot of our winning companies when you when we just looked at them for the first time, it wasn't a clear cut investment. Actually, the, the, when the investment is kind of clear cut, it's a good company, everything is well, everything is nice. At early stage, doesn't mean much. They they may be good companies, but they're not like the ones are real winners, a little bit crazy, a little bit problematic. So a lot, a lot of this it's luck. A lot of this it's uh, it's being there for them and helping them. But it's it's very hard to predict uh, who will be the winners. Also in in venture world, if you already have a brand as yeah. a VC fund, it's a huge huge advantage. Uh, because if you if you already have a brand, if if you just upstarting your new fund, if you just first or second fund, it's very hard to compete with brand names. So it's it takes a lot of time. It takes probably two, three pl uh, plus funds to get to this stage when you have a brand name, when you when people know you're successful and you can help uh, portfolio companies and then you start getting really good deals. Mm. Uh, so 10 years, it's in venture, it's pretty short term. And I think it's hard to say. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure we'll see some usual suspects there. And at the same time, we'll see a lot of new names too. Mm. Got it. So super interesting, and you know, so I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? I have several books, but like one which comes to mind, I really love. Uh, Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference. Yeah. It's a book on negotiation. Uh, love it, and uh, actually, I think 
at least a quarter of my founders, I basically just at some point said, okay, here is your book, you have to read it. And make sure you read it before your like next quarter or whatever. Right. Got it. And, um, and, you know, if you could go back in time when you started your career in, in venture capital and you, you, you know, start with in capital, or what, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Um, I think the main thing is it's all about people. Uh, then, especially when we started, uh, we would look at the company and we would, especially when we're talking about early stage, uh, we would try to analyze to the depth uh, competitive landscape, market, and all this stuff, and probably spend a little bit less time when we shoot on the team. Nowadays, we understand what's 90% of the success when we're talking about early stage, it's actual team. Yeah. Got it. Um, and do you have any favorite online tools, for example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? I, uh, I I wouldn't say it's like specific online tool, but this, the tech stack I'm using, it's pretty standard. We, uh, we use a lot of tools from Google, talking about like email, calendar, uh, power things. <clears throat> I love Calendly because it saved me a lot of time. We don't have uh, executive assistance now fund we everybody is doing their own kind of scheduling etc and it saves you a lot of time when you can send and frankly when people send me calendar link it's it just easier when uh, when talking to somebody it usually saves a lot of time we use affinity crm but by, most of the stuff is pretty standard i i wouldn't say we have specific tool which we're using which is like, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I think I think I can't do without Calendly and Zoom. I think these two products uh, run my yeah. Run my Zoom, Zoom is the main, and especially for us because we have uh, all the team is remote. Uh, so we actually, it's it's funny. Uh, in twenty twenty, everybody was complaining what we can't really invest over Zoom. And for us, it was business as usual. We, we were always investing over Zoom because the team is completely distributed. So every time we talk to founders, we try what at least one partner physically meet with founders, but not always. But we never had, well, almost never had an investment where all partners actually physically were able to meet with founding team because it's just way too complicated. So yeah, Zoom. And I do use a lot nowadays uh, chat GPT, but that would be like everybody is using it for all kinds of different things. We still, we're trying to figure out, we're looking at different tools uh, with AI relatively to like helping us with like uh, all kind of reach out and things like that, but we're still kind of learning all this stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think Chaji is like well, one of the best finds of last year, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Chaji, yeah. what uh, what what are the best way people can reach out to you and know more about Film Capital? Uh, so it's easier. It's easy to find me online. Uh, our site is flintcap.com. My email is sg at flintcap.com. Uh, 
uh, I'm usually try to answer. Uh, it's not always possible because I'm getting like several hundred emails a day. So sometimes it would take me even months to answer because usually I, I fly a lot. I, I usually travel to Israel every couple of months. So usually my uh, typical uh, routine is every time I'm on a transatlantic flight, I usually try to go through my emails and answer all these emails which you had no chance to answer in the last like couple of months. But yeah, no. it's <laughs> like... Yeah, no, I, I can totally understand. But we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, Sergey, well, uh, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Thank you for inviting me. It was really fun. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.